0: We're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. As we head into the Thanksgiving holiday, it's a time when we count our blessings. And this morning, Heart CEO Lori Kaikina joins us live. Hi, Lori. Hi, Catherine. I'm so glad that uh, you could carve out some time for us. And, you know, I think it was a week ago that you folks uh, were... Breathing a sigh of relief because we had a close call. Some vandals uh, got uh, uh, too close to some high-voltage equipment.
1: Oh yes, that that literally stops our hearts when we see that. Um, so so dangerous. Um, one of the incidences, they when they trespassed and and graffitied the train, they actually graffitied the third rail, which is hot, which is live. So very scary.
0: And you know uh, I'm sure you were just really relieved you know but uh, what are we doing to make sure that we've got better security so this isn't a problem
1: so Hitachi has implemented additional security measures which I'm not gonna divulge because that hopefully there's no copycats but just don't want to make it easier for um, anyone who wants to try and trespass get around our security measures but um, they've also engaged the homeland security to do a threat and a threat analysis of the facility to see where some of our um, vulnerabilities are and how we can improve things out there.
0: Okay, well, that's a good thing. You know uh, during you know this holiday season, you know there's more traffic and I know that traditionally the city and state, Uh, Highways folks have tried to, you know, uh, minimize construction, (laughs) Uh, you know, to ease people's stress. But, you know, with rail, we're going full guns, right? I mean, right after, I think at noon today, there's an update with uh, NAN, Nan, the contractors, NAN Construction, uh, with the businesses that are being affected by this uh, next phase of construction
1: that is correct so there is a portion of non-contract that is affected by the holiday schedules that dts imposes on all city agencies and contractors where it's mostly by shopping centers and malls where they figured the public would be going to do their shopping and and dining so there is a portion that is affected by that but the vast majority is not and we will be impacting traffic Um, unfortunately it's a necessary evil that we do need to do this
0: right and we are going into this urban core Uh, you know you're doing the utility uh, relocation there on Dillingham so you know what do folks need to know here uh, as we get into the holiday rush
1: yes Dillingham is going to be very busy very congested Um, we it will still be open we'll have to accommodate the businesses their driveways and um, we, we just can't stress enough that, you know, Kalihi is open for business. We, I know it's going to be difficult, but we need people to still patronize those businesses out there um, because it's a, it's a long haul. I know the newspaper, the headline news said three years, but um, that's just for the utility relocations. And then right after that, the guideway station contractor comes in to start building the columns. So it's more like seven to eight years.
0: of impact so long and painful (laughs) yes yes well okay and then there there is that uh, uh, it's a virtual meeting at noon today for updates
1: yes so this is a monthly meeting so actually all three of our contractors do a monthly meeting our Airport Guideway that's STG we have Coluccio who does the downtown one and then man does the Dillingham and we're going to do this one virtually and also December, probably virtually. But the goal is to find a location in January from the feedback that we got on our first meeting from some of the business owners in the past when Nan was doing uh, utility relocation prior, they had in-person meeting. So we would like to do that come January, a hybrid. So if people still can't make it out there physically, at least they can log in virtually.
0: Well, okay, so so this is the short-term uh, pain that we're dealing with, but there's also long-term pain, right? We've we've got those uh, cracks on the hammerhead uh, guideways that you're dealing with. Yeah. What's the latest on that? So
1: the latest is the engineer of record is coming up with a design for the fix for the the hammerhead cracks, and they are slated to have. The design done the first week of December and we'll share that with our stakeholders and probably two weeks for them to review the uh, remedial action and give us their comments but with the holidays I am probably anticipating not till the first of the year to get the all of the feedback from the stakeholders
0: so what's your sense as to when the actual repairs will start in January um, after
1: that yeah, or, or a little bit later after that, um, because they would still need to. Once the repair remedial action is approved, then they would need to get the contractors on board to actually do the physical repair. And there's that there's eight of them that have to be fixed.
0: And you know, Hart has not held a you know community open house. Uh, you know, since I think before, just before the pandemic shut down, yeah. you know, and now you've got yeah. all these issues. I mean, obviously, you don't want to get people on those uh, on those stations. You know, if there's a, a you know structural question that's lingering, uh, but what's you know your best guess as to when you know there might be another uh, come out and kick the tires sure, kind of thing? Sure,
1: sure. So so regarding the structural comment though. Uh, our engineer of record is saying the structural integrity is there. It's what we call the serviceability. It's the long term, right? So we technically could open up the stations, but out of uh, abundance of caution, our engineer of record said we prefer not to. Let's address the serviceability, the long term, right? Um, and and also once we open, we will and we try to do the construction remediation fix. AFTER WE'RE OPEN, THAT JUST CAUSES MUCH MORE COMPLEXITY. SO THAT'S WHY ENGINEER OF RECORD ASKED, PLEASE, LET'S JUST WAIT, LET'S GET THE DESIGN DONE, GET THE REPAIR DONE, AND THEN WE'LL OPEN. SO WE ARE STILL (laughs) TRYING TO BE OPTIMISTIC THAT IT'LL BE DONE uh, FIRST QUARTER, ALONG WITH OUR TRIAL RUNNING. AND THEN TO ANSWER YOUR QUESTION ABOUT AN OPENING, ONCE WE ARE DONE WITH THE TRIAL RUNNING AND THE HAMMERHEAD REPAIRS, WE HAND THIS OVER TO DTS. AND IT'S DTS WHO makes the determination when to open for revenue service. And I understand they may do some soft openings, right? So, so have dignitaries come but not necessarily open up the system, but let them go to the station, let them ride the train. And there may be a couple of those, and then the final, the grand opening, and then actually start revenue service. So that, those, that's actually a DTS's uh, kuleana to take care of.
0: So that soft opening, you think will be in the first quarter, hopefully. Um, maybe after that. So if okay. we hand this over to
1: DTS, let's say, yeah, end of March, they're they're going to need time. So they're kind of stuck in that they cannot they can only pre-plan so much. But until Hart can give them a go ahead, okay, we think we can hand this over to you March thirty first. They're probably going to need uh, maybe a couple of weeks to a month to to plan their soft openings and grand openings and give people time to get here
0: yeah well you know um i know that uh, we're going through uh, a really uh, um, complex phase but i don't know what are you most thankful for going into this holiday season with rail
1: very very good question um uh, we we had a little get together over here at heart um, unexpectedly and i was asked that that very question and i really just cannot thank the heart Team enough, you know. There's so many external pressures, whether it's the public, the media, all of our stakeholders. It, there's a lot of pressure on us, and when I'm here at heart, the support I, I, I receive from the heart team—it's just—it's incredible. And they're trying so, so hard to work hard and and change the public perception. We have a long way to go. I yeah. understand that, but I'm just thankful for what's been done so far to try and help change things and make things better for the
0: community all right well thank you Lori for doing what you do and uh, thank you for the staff uh, uh, they better eat their Wheaties because yeah it's going to be a of <laughs> painful time <laughs> <be>. yeah,
1: <laughs> but thank, thanks thanks so much captain. thank you Aloha. Happy Thanksgiving.
0: that was Lori Kaikina, CEO of Heart talking to us about this next phase of construction and the next steps to get our train operational
2: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. Created with help from Hawai'i's community, the immersive exhibition, Rebecca Louise Law, Awakening, explores the human connection to nature. Now on view, honolulumuseum.org. I'm Bert Lum, today on Bite and Mars Cafe, we catch up with the Hawai'i Sea Grant College. We'll find out how the recent exhibit, Resiliency, explores the intersection of science, education, and art. That today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Café. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Hawaii.
0: Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released the latest data on overdose deaths in the U.S. For, from the first half of this year. The data suggests deaths are declining, but many experts are urging caution. According to a report from HIDTA, Hawaii's high-intensity drug trafficking area, there were 48 overdose deaths in our state in 2021. 22 were on Kauai, 9 attributed to fentanyl. So what starts people, especially our youth, down this path of addiction? What are the red flags for people who are abusing fentanyl or other illicit drugs? The Conversations Russell SubiONO sat down with Aaron Hoff, the founder of the Keala Foundation on Kauai. Hoff is a recovering drug addict who's been clean and sober for the last 25 years. His foundation focuses on educating youth about the dangers of substance abuse and provides a safe community where they can find opportunities for a
3: healthier lifestyle. You have all these headlines recently about Pills laced with fentanyl, the DEA warning parents about brightly colored fentanyl pills meant to target our youth. What's new? What, what have you guys been seeing?
4: Well, it's still, still a lot of overdoses. It's, mm-hmm. There's a lot of them. A lot of suicides, too. We've been having a lot of those. And it's all all that stuff comes from mental health, you know, just yeah. using And But, yeah, there's there's a lot of overdoses happening. And it's just totally kept quiet here. Why, I, mean, why? I have friends that are in the ER and i have friends that are you know in the lifeguard business and they they're all in tune to what's happening and it's it's happening all the time it's just all under the radar nobody talks about it
3: where do you think it's that way i have no idea
4: really maybe the tourist industry uh-huh. nobody wants to bring that out they just want to keep this beautiful hawaii it could be the lo- lo- a lot of local families just, they just don't want to it's hard to deal with. It. I just had a nephew pass away two years ago, and it's the same thing. You know, when it happens, you don't want it to be broadcasted. You know, because there's a lot of pain involved with it, and there's just so many different factors going on. But still, on the other end of it, you know, there's no rehab facilities for kids over here. There's no detoxes on the island. There's there's just there's absolutely no resources on Kauai. They called me the other day. I had to buy somebody a plane ticket to Oahu just to go get detoxed. I mean, they just flew over there and walked into an ER. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's basically our, our option. You're pretty much sending over somebody who's all messed up on a plane to walk into an ER over there because there's nothing over here.
3: With all of these things that are happening, even statewide, when we look at the overdoses, the use of fentanyl and other illicit drugs on Kauai and across the state, what can parents do? Like, what are the red flags for somebody who is using?
4: So like the biggest factor in our society, especially on Kauai and on, on the islands is, you know, a lot of people say the gateway drug is marijuana and alcohol and people justify marijuana is okay. Alcohol is legal and this and that. But what they don't understand is like the, the gateway to drugs is the household. It's, 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 if you're a parent and you're drinking or smoking weed, or whatever you're doing in front of your kids, you just gave those kids a 100% chance of being able to pick up and use. They're going to copy what they see, and, and their family members, their uncles, their aunties, it's so normalized. You know, we, we connect fun as being able to drink and this stuff. and So that's the trap already, and that's already hard to change because we're being raised up in that environment to be able to use. and that's a, And that's a hard fact. You know, that's a really hard fact, and a lot of people can't digest it because they want to be able to, to do it you know life's not easy and our struggles are hard and it's nice to be able to drink something and take the edge off mm-hmm. so like for me the foundation that i've created the Kiala foundation i go way upstream and get these kids when they're young and i teach them all about this stuff i teach them all about prevention what it is that you know the, so that when they're in that environment they're actually educated enough to know like what that environment is and what's actually going on so that when the opportunity comes up for them to have a drink or a hit off a joint, which it will come there, they can make an educated choice.
3: And then when you do go upstream and you, you are able to get with these kids and educate them when you're interacting with them, are there any telltale signs that they're using? Are there things that you know, to look for?
4: Yeah. So what it is, is, so there's a saying like when you're, when you try to get sober in AA or you go into one of those programs when you get... And you're already older down the road. When you go into there to an AA meeting, you're going to become educated, and it'll it'll ruin your drinking for the rest of your life. You'll never be able to drink the same because you'll know the truth. So with us, I ruined their ability to drink and use at a young age. So they're educated. They're just as educated as the drunk who walks into an AA meeting. So what happens is most kids, you know, I would love to say they come to our program and they're sober for the rest of their life and they become successful but our environment is so saturated in in that stuff that they're going to get touched by it. I don't care who, how good of whatever's, they're going to be exposed to those environments because it's a small island. Everything's condensed and the whole, you know what I mean? It's just the way it is. So we educate them and tell, tell scientists what happens is they stop coming around things and you can see it. They'll stop coming around healthy things and environments and start going, wanting to go out. They stop being transparent. They start to detach. Your life and kids naturally, as they get older, they push their parents away because they're starting to like birds when they get they fly out of the nest. It's the same thing; they start to get pushed away. But the thing is, when they're younger, if you want to get them attached or introduced into an environment like ours, which is healthy, so that when they do detach, they're 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 going away to and they're lashing onto an environment like the Kiala Foundation. And then when they're there, they're being carried through the deadliest years of their lives. Kids are using it eight to nine years old now. So that from that age to become seniors, we walk with them and give them opportunities and all the things to have a successful life. And we also teach them about how to process trauma and all of these types of things. And then what happens is they learn how to process these traumas and naturally becomes a working part. You know what I mean? They start to build a toolkit and then, when they learn to process these traumas and not stuff them, they don't start to develop like mild depression and all this stuff because they're, they're getting rid of all the things that normal people stuff. If kids don't have that outlet, they stuff it and then they start to not feel good in themselves. And then that's why there's suicide and all that. And then they'll be around an environment one day and they'll take a hit off a joint and then, man, wow, they feel so good. And then right there, that's the beginning of addiction. They go, oh, I know how to make myself feel good now. So yeah, it's hard times right now. The drug problem is not going away; it's only getting worse. And my biggest thing is, if we're not there upstream, catching these kids early and creating these environments, unless those kids have that, they're they're doomed. It's it's an endless cycle, and it's just, you know.
3: And when you talk about taking preventative measures, one of the things that have popped up in in discussions lately, there have been people calling for Narcan to be available in classrooms. So, yeah, I was wondering what your thoughts were on that.
4: Yeah, I'm, I support that because it's going to happen. You know, A lot of the drugs people are taking, they don't even know what's in it. And it happens. It's happening everywhere. I've, I've had friends being Narcan several times in the past week. It's a regular thing. It's, it goes hand in hand with drug using now. It's almost like normal. You got to have your Narcan. But somebody giving a kid dying a, a Narcan that doesn't know what he's doing is better than nobody trying
3: Kauai residents have to wait until next August for Grove Farm, the adolescent treatment center that was supposed to have already opened. It won't open until next August. So in the meantime, you know, if somebody's addicted, if somebody wants to get help for someone who is addicted, is there somewhere to go on Kauai or or do they have to come to Oahu?
4: So we just opened a uh, intervention camp for kids. So we have one already that's running over here. And now we're opening up January we're doing it's another 30-day program from kids 12 to 18 boys and they can go on to the Kiala Foundation and look up on the intervention program and apply so if parents need it they can go there and they can apply and then we have intake specialists we have all that set up so that the kids can go in there and have an opportunity to do that and our stuff doesn't come with red tape so we move quick and I hope hopefully after this one we'll get it going and by the End of the next year, and we'll, we'll be moving full speed ahead. What's taking those guys years to not get done, we're getting it done. It's being done already through the community, you know, and it's just been my philosophy. And we've been able to get it in front of hundreds, if not thousands of kids and families. The foundation has been six years now. I've been doing it for 10 years. So I've actually been doing this for 25 years, working with kids. And my house has been like a halfway house. And so there's been tons of kids that have come through and they got their lives back, you know, families got their kids back. But then there's been a tons of kids that haven't, you know, but at least for that, that's available now. So if anybody needs that, just go to the Keala foundation. And then hopefully with grow farm, I've been talking with them a little bit. Hopefully they get, they get that thing moving quick. I'm a big supporter of getting something going.
3: I really appreciate your time, Aaron. Thanks for talking to me. You have a good one too, man.
0: That was the Kiala Foundation's Aaron Hoff talking with HBR's Russell Subiano about efforts to curb substance abuse amongst youth on Kauai. We'll have links to more information about the Foundation's program on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Hundreds of residential high rises have failed to meet acceptable fire safety standards. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair on the line today. Good morning, Chad.
5: Good morning, Catherine, and happy pre Thanksgiving.
0: Yes. And so we've got a story today from Christian Downey.
5: Yeah, you know, she mentions the Marco Polo fire, which, you know, still is pretty recent in memory 2017. And remember how four people died. And I think that underscores, if you will, the the seriousness of her story today, basically what she's reporting on is the Honolulu Fire Department. This month reported to the city council on on fire safety evaluations for hundreds of high rises in Honolulu. It turns out more than 280, I'll just repeat that figure, more than 280 Honolulu high rises failed uh, the fire safety evaluation. That is a, a concern given not only what happened with Marco Polo, but the frequency with which we have uh, fires uh, in, in the city and county. And the primary reason is that these, these buildings were so old that they don't have water sprinklers. And it has been proven that water sprinklers really are the best ways to deal with fires and high rises.
0: Yeah, I mean, gosh, that fire certainly made us pause to think like, wow, this could be pretty bad, uh, you know, across our Honolulu.
5: Yeah, the story, uh, she really did some great background, Kirsten did. Uh, By the way, we're talking about buildings that are 75 feet or higher. and. These are buildings primarily, not exclusively, but most of them were built in the 1950s and the 60s and the 1970s. And because of that, they didn't have to adhere to that 1975, I believe that's the year when water sprinklers were required. What they did is they grandfathered those buildings or many of them in. And uh, there really hasn't been much effort to retrofit many of them because, as you can imagine, it's very costly thousands of dollars for the apartment and condo owners. Here's another detail that really caught me by surprise in Kirsten's story. Another problem is the furniture for some of these these units. there it's it's um old wooden furniture, f- furniture with cloth fabric, cotton fabric, stuff that's not flame retarded if you will, like more modern uh, furnishings and, and that only adds to the, the risk in these older buildings.
0: Yeah, you know, it, it is amazing, you know, because, you know, during that time I remember reaching out to regulators and I know that, you know, they were saying that, you know, how everybody likes these open concept kitchens? Well, <laughs> it used to be that you had, uh, you know, with the smaller old old style homes and a smaller footprint. you had more more time to escape a, a, a burning building. Well, with these open concept kitchens, guess what? The, those fires burn faster, and so just actually, uh,
5: that's a good point. It actually leads me to something else I should mention about escaping. Um, and it, if if you're in a, a building, multi-story building, takes a lot of time to get down. Well, the fire department did find out that a lot of these older buildings don't have good escape routes, or it's not clearly clear how one evacuates the building. So I'm glad you brought up the part about the kitchen and. You you know, there was something else in the report. Even the doors for a lot of these older units um, don't uh, close securely enough. And so uh, not only can flames uh, get through, but smoke inhalation, as you know, that's a serious problem too with these fires.
0: Yes. So, you know, I know there was a timeline uh, that the the city council right. had put out there saying, hey folks, we need to pay attention to this problem because people did die in the Marco Polo fire.
5: They did. And as Kirsten also points out, it really takes tragedies to, to drive these points home. Just briefly, she mentioned that MGM Grand Fire way back in 1980 in Vegas. After that, a lot of Wahoo hotel, hotels retrofitted, got the sprinklers in. But really, again, that's beyond the uh, financial capability of so many apartment and condo owners. And even though the council has been urging, there is also opt-out options regarding those safety evaluations and how to how to keep living in a building without a water sprinkler.
0: Well, it's a sobering story, but something that's important. So uh, thank you very much, Uh for highlighting this. But thanks, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. We've been talking to editor Chad Blair for today's reality check. To read Kirsten Downey's story on this issue, visit civilbeat.org.
2: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaiian Airlines, connecting the local community with more than 120 flights daily between the islands. Schedules and reservations at hawaiianairlines.com. Today on The Daily, a special Thanksgiving episode of the show about the high-stakes
6: quest to cook the perfect turkey. I spoke with two food writers at The Times, Kim Severson, and Kenji Lopez-Alt about the hard-earned lessons that they've learned. I'm Michael Barbaro, and that's
5: today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30...
2: Support for the conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Na Mea, Hawaii and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training.
0: This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Though not your standard songbird, the wild turkey's gobble, gobble, gobble has been charting at number one in the bird world, bird world for 200 straight Thanksgivings. You can hear the smash hit on today's Mono Minute with University of Hawaii at Hilo professor
7: Patrick Hart. Wild turkeys are native to North America and were imported to England by merchants from Turkey in the 1500s which is apparently how they got their name. Also known as Pelehu in Hawaiian, they're the first birds brought by Westerners to Hawaii way back in 1788. That original flock may have died out, but they've been reintroduced for hunting on most of the main Hawaiian islands a number of times since then, most recently in the early 1960s on Hawaii Island. Today, wild turkeys can be regularly seen in open woodlands and pastures, usually at higher elevations on most of the islands. Most people know a wild turkey when they see one, but males are much larger than the hens, have black and dark brown feathers with iridescent green bars, and have conspicuous patches of bare skin or wattles under their chin that can change color with their mood, bright red when excited or blue when nervous or not feeling so good. Males also have spurs for fighting and a thick tuft of feathers dangling from their breast known as a beard, which is likely a status signal to other turkeys. Like many bird species, the females are much duller in color and also lack the spurs and wattle. They lay a clutch of nine or more eggs on the ground, and the chicks are able to forage on their own soon after they hatch, but tend to follow the mother around for a number of weeks. Turkeys of both sexes make a variety of clucks, cackles, and yelps to communicate different sorts of information to other turkeys. But that gobble sound that we all associate with turkeys is actually only produced by the male, and usually during mating season to let other females know he's in the area. Turkeys mostly eat tender green plant shoots as well as various seeds, fruits, grain, and insects. Because they tend to only be found in disturbed grasslands and woodlands, they likely are not a major spreader of invasive plant species into our native forests like other game birds, such as the calige pheasant. Turkey hunting season is mostly for a month or two in the spring, and is popular with both local hunters and tourists, though word is that it takes a decent chef to make them taste good. Otherwise, they're fairly bland, tough, and rubbery. As a bit of a side note, there's been strong scientific evidence over the last couple decades that birds are actually feathered dinosaurs, which means that all dinosaurs didn't actually go extinct. Even more recent phylogenetic evidence shows that the birds most closely related to feathered dinosaurs are in the order known as Galliformes, which includes turkeys. So, when you see a turkey in the wild, you might imagine you're looking at a modern-day dinosaur. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology.
2: Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge committed to helping preserve, protect, and restore the biological diversity of Hawaii Island. Friends of Friendsofhakalaoforest.org.
0: As 2022 draws to a close, we pause to reflect on how we did dealing with the stress of the pandemic. Well, Kaiser High School graduate uh, Chris Reiner went to work in his art studio and the fruits of his labor can be seen in a new art exhibit that opened this month. It's called the Cavidians. It's up at the hipster arts and letters gallery in Chinatown on Nu'umano Street through the end of the year. It is thought provoking, humorous and well, it's healing. As we walked in, patrons were already engaged in discussion with the artist himself. There are a series of pieces, and the question posed was if there was one in particular that he thought symbolized his show.
6: That's called "Raining COVID." R e i g, raining COVID, because it has clouds that are covered in a lot of little COVID dots, and that material is is throughout the whole, all the pieces of COVID, and the. The character is holding, uh, the guy's holding a rain uh, Mm -hmm. rain gauge and the the woman's holding an umbrella feeling if there's more drops, more COVID coming and the rain gauge on the bottom says March 2020 when it started, then it goes to March 2021, then it's March 2022 and then it's overflowing and we're going into more and we're all really, really tired of it. I actually like the technical side of things that you do. I think that's good. Instead of keeping it flat, the fabric mm-hmm. scrunch up a little bit. I think it's a nice touch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but that was a. That's just a matter of. I, I used six hundred yards of thread okay. to make the piece. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so all that sewing made the fabric, pull in like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah things yeah, yeah. that happen. Uh, great. And organically. Yeah. Great yeah. yeah, working, yeah, 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 yeah. Accidents. Sort of right. Fabric.
0: Right. No, oh, good. Good stuff, man. Thank you so much for bringing your stuff oh, here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That show features a number of three-dimensional political pieces. It's food for deep thought. Reiner likes to work with obtanium, and if that term is new to you, it's found objects, something he discovered in art school and took the heart. He explains how it all works.
6: At my shop, I have 50 bins of obtanium that I have pictures of what's in each bin, and then um, I have a map of where each bin is so I can te- uh, tell what's where and what I need to go to. So, not wasting lots of time, but having a library of Obtainium requires space, so it definitely takes up space.
0: But at least it's orderly, right? <laughs>
6: uh, yes, uh, yeah. yeah, you definitely get to be discerning about what you collect and leave behind. For
0: sure. So tell us how the Covidians came about.
6: So I started in early jan well i guess yeah it was about january or february of 2020 and i started working on this first piece over here all of a sudden COVID hit everything shut down and because that was in my head and everyone's head attached a mask to this figure on balancing on this chair And all of a sudden, it just started this series over this period of time. It was over a two-year period of time of of COVID. And this one has a a silhouette of a figure balancing on a chair and has a mask on that's covered in little COVID dots. And um, uh, the chair is tipped over. He's holding on to the chair, and there's a sugar cube at the top of the chair. And if the figure goes towards the sugar cube, the whole chair is going to tip over. Well, the seat of the chair has the Hawaiian Islands, and when COVID hit, we were completely shut down, couldn't go inner island couldn't go nationally. There's monofilament, fishing wire, and it's on a map, and it's kind of like we were in an invisible prison,
7: uh, uh,
6: for good reason, I think. And if this figure goes after the sugar cube, that's a want. We had what we needed, but some people had to get more and what they wanted, in potentially putting the community at risk, and it was just my, I wish people were just just let's just feel it out and see how bad it is. Let's be patient it's called. Let's be patient.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're in, we're in a precarious spot here at this, at this point in time in the pandemic.
6: Yeah, yeah, there's right because we didn't know how bad it was, and and if you look back at pandemics, they can get really go south and very quickly. So that's where, that's where that piece just happened to go with where we were.
0: Well, it's fun that you've had people come through this gallery and engage with you about what you produced here and what you were trying to illustrate during these different points you know, over these couple of years. It's great that
6: people have an opinion or it's, it's creating them to ask questions about the work, the time period, what it was inferring in the work. This is called The Trip to the Earth. This was the second in the series, and this was in the summer of 2020 when it was really bad, New York especially was bad. There were a lot of deaths happening, and I had heard about this couple that was sailing, and they were you know, out for a month or something, and they then they came into a port, and all of a sudden they couldn't get off their boat because COVID had spread all over the planet, and it made me think about, well, what if people lived on the moon and they came down in their spacesuits and thought, okay, well, this is great. I can take off my space boot and walk around, but they still have their spacesuits on because it's so bad, and this character is pointing at COVID coming over the hill, and the land is made of maps of the United States and on the uniforms it says "Covidian 1900 120 2020. And if you look inside each of these helmets, you'll see a mirror and your reflection, but if you look around the sides, you'll see lots of gatherings of people and COVID spreading rapidly. It's one thing to have a major event in your community or your state or your nation, but to have a a situation globally many generations it's not just doesn't happen to every generation it happens once in a while so that's interesting period of time so after that craziness happens in that that summer all of a sudden we have an insurrection happens in the middle of our craziness with covid and so this is an airplane that it's motorized it goes around in two revolutions per minute and these pieces are roughly four foot by four foot. They're, they're pretty large and they come out from the wall. This one comes out 13 inches, I think, from the wall. And it's made with capiz placemats, shell placemats from the 60s. And this plane has a mask on. It's kind of basically our nation. And it shows on the left wing of the airplane, there are the solidly blue states that are stitched in to the wing and on the right side are the solidly red states and on its tail there's George Washington and the Capitol building kinda trying to keep the plane afloat in with democracy and on the tail there's a a, a star like that that's on a Russian airplane uh, trying to steer our elections and democracy as well and on the very top connected pulling on the right wing is a kite and the kite says 45, president number 45, and there's a crown on it, and it's destabilizing the plane as well, so it's trying to stay aloft, and it's still aloft, but uh, it's, it's, in my opinion, and others, it's a little shaky.
0: Okay, there you go. And then the title of this one is?
6: A Dissension by Insurrection. Okay. I started it in January, and I finished it in July, 21. So, what is this one? So, this is the fourth in the series. This is Invertus Covidus. And this one is basically the optics of COVID. So, this is after the insurrection. And then it really, things really turned political that year in 2021. This is an eyeball. And the eyeball is looking at a giant COVID ball. And so, the refraction of the image of the COVID ball goes into this uh, giant eye, which is a, an old fishing float. And on the upside down part that's in the eye, there's a, a <laughs> syringe for shots and then a three-legged donkey. The Democrats weren't having, quite getting it all together. And then on the, on the top of it, you have another syringe that has an X, you know, no shots, no masks, and a dice, which I th- think that we were gambling with lots of things, for better and for worse. And then uh, there's an elephant that's lost its head that's on a spring, that's just not together. And then there's a mirror that you see yourself because we're all a part of it and we all have an opinion about all of these things. And I think you see where my opinion is. But so, so things that are up on the top of the ball are refracted upside down. And things that are on the bottom are right side up inside the eye. So that's where I think of.
0: And what is this one called?
6: This one is called Invertus Covidius.
0: And that particular piece, playing off the optics of the pandemic, was my personal favorite. We have been featuring the work of artist Chris Reiner, who settled into a studio in Waimanalo during the pandemic to produce The Covidians. We hope what you heard gets you down there to see for yourself. It helps to put what we just went through in perspective. Reiner calls himself a political junkie, and his thought-provoking art pieces are the products of the pandemic. The show runs through January 7th. Stick around. We check in with his little sister. Julie Reiner is next in our show. She's spreading her creative wings with a new bar and a new Netflix show. It was Chris Reiner who told us about our next story. We first met his sister, Julie, through the Hawaii Food and Wine Festival a few years back in 2019, before the COVID shutdown. Chris was happy to share that his little sister made a debut on Netflix just before his show's opening. Julie Reiner is one of three mixologists on a show called Drink Masters. It's a cocktail competition, a la British Bake Off. But Mary Berry, move over. Judge Julie's at the bar. Here's a clip.
5: Welcome to Drink Masters. Yay! Yay!
7: In this competition, push your skills to the limit to create masterpieces of liquid art.
5: There's a hundred grand on the line and the life-changing title of
3: Ultimate Drink Master.
8: Bartenders today are taking a much more culinary approach to cocktails.
3: I have a lot of wild ingredients. So well done. So awesome. This is the future of mixology.
8: I'm feeling like they're going
0: to change it up. Something's going to happen.
8: I want to win really bad.
5: Time's up. The first Drink Master is.
0: Drink Masters on Netflix now. We caught up with Reiner yesterday at her new bar in Soho called Milady's. It just opened last month. She talks about how the show Drink Masters came about.
8: Well, you know, they reached out to me during the pandemic um, to see if I would be interested in talking to them about being a judge on the show. You know, and I've judged a ton of cocktail competitions over the course of my career. But in former year, like previously, I would have absolutely said no to anything reality TV based. But because I was making drinks on a table at the front door, I was like, I guess I should say yes to all of these opportunities <laughs> just to see what's out there, you know. So I started talking to them and uh, we, you know, they decided that they wanted me to be a judge on the show with Frankie Soleric and our host, Tone Bell. And we shot it a year ago in Canada.
0: We've seen the popularity of the, you know, the, the great, British bake off right and that's uh, got such a huge following and so yeah the the fact that you have a mixologist a competition uh, is pretty fun particularly you know it's rolling out during the holidays
8: yeah for sure i mean you know yeah this is definitely the time of year that people do a lot of imbibing and yeah, you know, I think it's great. It's shining a light on the culinary techniques that bartenders use and, you know, people oftentimes they go into a bar and a drink, you know, they order a drink off of a menu and they really don't realize all of the different things that actually go into making that cocktail. You know, we, we create a lot of these things ahead of time and, you know, a lot of things happen in the kitchen and we're creating syrups and foams and, you know, all sorts of different infusions. Um And uh, we make it look easy, (laughs) but there's a lot uh, of time that's put into it.
0: Well, I think when we last chatted with you, it was for the Hawaii Food and Wine Festival. And, oh, I'm trying to think now. Was it egg whites that was... uh, being used in one of those concoctions of, for that festival gosh
8: well i do different drinks for hawaii food and wine every year <laughs> so this year i, I have no, i did not do any cocktails with egg white but yeah every year it's, it's a different drink
0: so what's the i don't know the darling ingredient <laughs> in your field these days you know because there's always new things that are coming up
8: i can tell you that mezcal and tequila are still very very popular you know and the, the egg white that I did in, in that cocktail was I, – I, what the cocktail that I demoed on the show is a Clover Club cocktail, which is our house cocktail at my bar, Clover Club. And um, that has egg white in it uh, just to give it texture and, you know, like a creamy mouthfeel. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, it's seasonal, really. I mean, I know Hawaii is not quite as seasonal because the weather is pretty much the same all year round. But here in New York, you know, the the flavors and spirits that people drink definitely change depending on the season.
0: Well, I know during COVID, I found that my way of dealing with the pandemic was to try new things, you know, and tickle my taste buds, you know? So I was always looking for, for something interesting uh, that would just, you know, make my mouth go zing. But I don't you know uh, anything recently that you've come across that was exciting to you? There's a lot of martini variations out there right now. People are really into martinis
8: these days. So, you know, I generally tend to order a house, whatever the house martini is when I go into places. I can also tell you that the espresso martini is making a serious comeback. (laughs) We, uh, I think we made 60 of them last night here at Milady's. It's, crazy uh, how many people are, are drinking uh, espresso martinis. But yeah, you know, I for me, when I go into a bar, I sort of try to look at the menu and see what their favorites are and, and the, the things that are their house signatures. And that's what I like to, to order.
0: Now, do you feature uh, anything from Hawaii just because of your connection here? I mean, I don't know if you use Kona Coffee. Yeah, I
8: actually have a, well, have a cocktail on the menu called the Hawaiian ice Tea that is a... Infusion um, of it has, uh, vodka and pisco in it, and fresh lemon juice, and a um, a tea that's a Hawaiian tropical tea called L- Lilio Kalani, which is super delicious. That's something that's on the menu currently, and in, you know, in the summertime, I always have mai tai variations and. You know, I used a lot of lily koi and guava and coconut and those sort of flavors because I grew up with them, you know.
0: With this show, then, you know, you get to uh, try the different drinks concocted by the um, contestants on there. But I don't know. Well, w- Like, do you have any advice for, you know, any upcoming mixologists out there? Because <laughs> you, you seem to have landed um, pretty nicely over there on the East Coast. I mean, my advice for
8: up-and-coming bartenders is really to, like, put the work in and, you know, learn, learn the classics first. Uh, I think, you know, oftentimes people want to jump to doing, you know, fun things with smoke and, you know, dry ice and all sorts of things. But, you know, study the classics and learn why these recipes that are three ingredient drinks and why why they work as well as they do so that you have that foundation before you start trying to create your own cocktails. In Hawaii, there there's a brand new cocktail bar that just opened that i'm really excited to check out i I met some of the people involved while when i was there for hawaii food and wine but it's called talk in kaimuki so it's where coffee talk is and i guess they are they just kind of turned it into a little cocktail bar so i'm excited to go check out some of those drinks and that's something that for your hawaii listeners to really get out there
0: and uh go check out Okay, well, that's in my neighborhood, so that's definitely on my list. Uh, But, yeah, you know, I mean, there there are places that open every day, you know. Uh, I think there's a new new bar over at Hale Kulani. But, you know, places open and close all the time. How is it in New York? I mean, you know, because people think, oh, my gosh, you know, you're in New York. You've made it. It's just um, it's crazy that, that, uh, you know, you've gotten such great exposure and, uh, you know, you're at the top of your field. Yeah, I mean, doing
8: business in New York is hard, um, as one would expect. But, um, but, yeah, I mean, it's the kind of thing where if you, you know, there, there, there's a reason that they say if you can make it here, you'll make it anywhere <laughs> because it's difficult. But when you hit something in New York City, it's global, and people talk about it all over the world. So that is really, that is how you become more of a global success uh, in a city like this. But yeah, I mean, I've I've been here a long time, and a lot of it for me was the right time and right place. I opened my first bar here in New York in 2003, so uh, it was the very beginning of the sort of cocktail revival. And um, you know, since then I've opened six bars, and yeah, I'm kind of a part of the fabric here in New York City. Hopefully, I'm my goal is ultimately is to be in Hawaii during the winter and. Brooklyn the rest of the year. <laughs> uh, that would be, that's, that's the goal.
0: And that was Hawaii mixologist Julie Reiner, who was just here in the islands for the Hawaii Food and Wine Festival. Uh, she was featured as a judge on the new Netflix show Drink Masters, which is a cocktail competition where contestants vie for the title of top mixologist and a $100,000 prize. And thanks to the Reiners for those stories. We do have to go now. We're going to take a break for the Thanksgiving holiday, but we will be back next week, Monday. What are you thankful for? Here's Stephen sharing what he's grateful for.
4: Hello, my name is Stephen West. I live in Pukalani, Maui. Things I'm grateful for this year is definitely for
5: the ability to
4: serve others, to be a blessing to them. I'm grateful to our new incoming president, Chris West, for the ILWU that has supported me to help others and most definitely grateful to my family that supports me and you know their sacrifice time away from me every moment I'm
7: I'm so appreciative of the time that I spend with them take care a lot
0: Thank you so much, Stephen. So what are you thankful for this holiday season? Record something on our Talkback line, 808-792-8217, or share on Facebook or email. Want to listen back to something you heard today? Find all of our shows archived online. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us next Monday for more of the conversation. ¶¶